there's one way that uh, Dharma talks on retreat are a little bit different than the Dharma talks that we have, you know, at IMC or in sort of, you know, community center. And um, the idea is that the talk is a support for your practice, encouragement, hopefully an encouragement for your practice, and not necessarily a vehicle for um, information. You probably will get some information, but it's not that important to sort of take in the ideas and chew on them and and reflect on them in a kind of uh, a discursive way. And it's okay. It's okay if you're you're, um, inspired to do that. But it's almost more like um, maybe better to give 80% or 70% or something of your attention to your body, to your practice, to your... And then listen. It's sort of like you listen with the pores of your skin, you know, and um, absorb something, maybe, hopefully, um, if there's anything good to absorb that way. Um, Anyway, that's just a suggestion. And in that way, um, the instructional periods and the talks are, are a continuation. There's a continuity of mindfulness and a continuity of your attention. Um, so it's not like we're kind of, you know, checking out and watching a TV show. It's you know, it's um, we're, we're still sitting, we're still we're still meditating, and there's you know something else happening. So. Uh, that said, um, I'm happy to see you're all still here. <laughs> I um, as as Matthew has said, the first day of retreat, especially if this is your first retreat or um, one of your first retreats. Um, can often be difficult. No difficulties arise. And um, what what is it? people say that Buddhists say that life is suffering, right? You know, and then we go on retreat and prove it. <laughs> um, but there are three other noble truths. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> so, um, but, but just to say, I am, um, just want to honor and appreciate you for, for, for your practice, um, uh, what you're bringing here to IRC, what you're, what you're bringing to, um, this room that, um, your practice inspires everybody else here. So like, you know, everybody is supporting each other. And it's the, it's the beautiful um, alchemy of Sangha. And um, in a way, if it weren't difficult, maybe it wouldn't be 
so valuable to do. Maybe it wouldn't be worth doing. You know, maybe it wouldn't be worth your time to come here if if there weren't some difficulties and some some challenges. Um, I often think that, like, you know, if there are two yogis and one one person just has no problem sitting and just you know, no restlessness, no anxiety, no. Uh, intrusive fantasies, no uh, uh, fear, and you know, just kind of sits and you know, sort of blankly um, relaxes for three days. And then another person has a really unruly mind and is like, you know, riding on a on a bucking bronco and is doing everything to just stay in the room, or just stay on, on the cushion. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, you can, you can sort of imagine who, who will be, maybe who will be learning more, who will be growing more. Um, so even though difficulties are difficult, um, we should be, uh, grateful for difficulties, um, And then, and then the other thing about difficulties is retreat conditions are often so comfortable and so nice. I mean, it's a little warm in here, but it's basically, you know, a pretty comfortable place. So we sort of realize that the difficulties that emerge are, are often coming from us. It's, um, So what I thought as as one as one um, theme for this talk, to address in this talk, is what is the connection between mindfulness and suffering less and being I'm going to use the H word happy, being happy more. You know, as how can mindfulness help us to suffer less? And be more happy, more, more peaceful, more free. Um, and there's a little bit of a paradox because we um, may notice that through being here and through engaging in the practice of mindfulness, we're actually suffering more, not less, you know, we're, or we're, um, we're noticing more of, of, uh, our unease, our discomfort, um, I would suggest that, um, it may feel like we're, we're suffering more because we're letting more of it in, you know. And in our everyday life, it's, it's so easy and it's so automatic to sort of distract ourselves and, um, and sort of escape from difficulties. And that's, you know, I think there was something, I can't remember, there's something like, 
people check their phone, you know, Apple and Google are able to sort of, they know every time you open your phone, right? You know, every time you open, and it's like hundreds and hundreds of times a day, <laughs> you know, that the average person checks. Um, and, you know, what's that about? What is that about? Um, so, so it's a, maybe we can say that our deep conditioned instinct is to get away from unease, get away from discomfort. And the challenge of Dharma practice is this sort of replacing that instinct for getting away with this intention to be with, to be with, to stay with. Um, so, so in one way, um, practice is building our capacity to be with our experience and not check out, not escape, not avoid. Um, and one of the things we discover is that um, when we cut ourselves off from what's difficult, we're also cutting ourselves off from what's wonderful, from what's delightful, from what's joyful. It's the same thing that feels the difficulties, feels the joy. So um, if we could surgically just cut out the difficulties, and maybe that would be that would be interesting, but it doesn't seem to doesn't seem to work that way. Um, one of my teachers says you have to eat the whole salad or something. You know, all the you know it's all mixed. It's all mixed in. Um, so you know, so sometimes we say, and maybe you've you've felt this at times, that the most difficult place to be is here. And the most difficult thing to do is this. There's always, you know, there's always something, uh, something that seems you know, maybe seems better or seems more appealing than what's happening in this moment. So. Um, One of the important um, dynamics of the mind to understand is uh, the forces that um, prevent us from being here. Um, in in the language, in the Dharma language, they're referred to as the five hindrances. I think a number of you are familiar with these, but I know some of you aren't. And this is one of the um, most useful Dharma teachings for a meditator, because um, these are um, these are the ways that we escape. These are the strategies or the mechanisms that we use to sort of uh, check out, and they block our ability to be present to be here, to be concentrated. Uh, so these five are uh, 
sensual desire, and then aversion or ill will. So it's sort of like, I want it, I don't want it. Um, the third is usually translated as sloth and torpor. This is a kind of dullness of the mind, laziness, sometimes called laziness, dullness. Um, and the counterpart to sloth and torpor is restlessness. You know, so these third and fourth hindrances have to do with energy. You know, the energy is somehow out of balance. Too little energy or cut off from the energy is sloth and torpor. And too much energy in a, in a certain kind of way is restlessness. And then the fifth hindrance is doubt. Um, are you familiar with these a little bit? Or, um, so, so one thing to say about all of these hindrances is that they color our perception. They distort how we see and what we see. I mean, and I think we all know this or can can relate to this. Like um, the example I was using earlier is that if I'm tired, if I'm cranky, if I'm hungry, if I'm irritable, you know, and somebody bumps into me, you know, whatever, you know, just my family and just in the house, you know, it's, it's kind of like, wait, you know, which way you're going? Um, if I'm in a great mood, I had something, some great news, I had some great, you know, just just finished meditating, and I feel so light, and you know, it doesn't matter, you know. Little little annoyances don't um, don't uh, send me off balance. Um, When we see through the, you know, these hindrances are sort of like filters. And um, when, we see, when we see through one of these filters, we suffer. You know, we, and, and it so affects how we experience our life. Um, so I'll talk, about, I'll talk about each of them a little bit. But in, in Pali, the word is nivarana. Um, for hindrances, which is um, usually translated as coverings. These are forces in the mind that literally cover over our, they cover over our radiance, they cover over our hearts. Um, and so the idea is they're universal. They're ev- everyone, basically, who's not a Buddha is these are present to some degree or another. And uh, f- for our practice to unfold and develop, we need to learn how to work with these, how to relate to them wisely. Um, the point is not necessarily to delete them, but to to relate to them with wisdom, to understand them. You know, if I understand the way desire works in my mind, um, I can be free from it, even if it's present. If I understand how anger works, if I understand um, 
the doubting mind or anxiety or um, sort of sleepiness and, and dullness. Um, So, so the present in each of us, they're, they're, um, as, as much as possible, not to take them personally. I'll talk about a few ways of working with them in general. Um, the, the most basic is to, is to literally, to when, when a hindrance is present, so um, is, is to note it, to name it, to really uh, bring mindfulness to it. Um, there's something about mindfulness that... Um, Embedded in mindfulness itself is a kind of letting go, you know, so if I see something, you know, it's like to see something is to be at least somewhat independent of it, is to be somewhat free from it. So um, to know what these five are and to be able to spot them in our experience is so important, so helpful. So naming it, noting it, and then um, something about getting familiar with how they operate. Like um, one of the things we were talking about in the group uh, interview, group discussion, is is the way the way a hindrance like desire or sleepiness may work. It's like, um, um, sometimes when sleepiness, it, you know, it's very, very common on the first day of the retreat to feel sleepy. And, you know, and it can be like in every, you may feel sleepy right now, actually. And, um, you know, it, it, I mean, every sitting sometimes I remember just kind of nodding off and then coming back and nodding off and coming back. And it's something to investigate. You know, it may be that we're tired. You know, we've come in after a busy week, a busy life, and we're, we're finally sort of catching our breath. And all of that sleepiness is able to, you know, come to the surface. And, and it's understandable. So... We say, if you're really, really sleepy, um, just take a nap. Just go take a nap. Um, take a walking period, whatever, and, t- and take a nap. Um, and then sometimes it's not so much that the body is tired, that the body really needs rest and really needs sleep, but there's something in the mind that um, is using sleepiness as a way of maybe not, maybe getting a little distance from something or, or not looking at something. That sometimes when the system is overwhelmed or 
a little bit, um, um, you know, overstimulated in some way, the response can be sleepiness. Like I remember with my, when my older daughter was a baby and we would take her out into sort of a busy shop or something, just people and there's them talking and there's announcements and this, that and music. And, and it wasn't so loud, but there was just a lot of activity and just, you know, it's the best way to get a baby to fall asleep. It's just like, just, just, you know, the system just disconnects and, um, I know for myself, it's like, I can feel sort of fine, but then if I, if I realize, oh, there's some, I really should write these emails. I'm starting to yawn, even as I, <laughs> you know, these bills I, I gotta open and, you know, and, but, it, and but I'm just so tired now. I don't want to do it tomorrow. You know, this, this is, this is sloth and torpor. Um, whereas when someone says, you know, in the next moment, who wants to get ice cream? Me, 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 me. <laughs> Immediately, we perk up. Um, so, so these these hindrances they function as our strategies. Um, our strategies, in, you know, in some cases to 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 avoid the very simple, ordinary experience of feeling what we're feeling, being being with what's happening right now. Um, desire in, in the same way, you know, desire is very interesting. You know, I think especially, um, for our, our age group. Um, I remember one of us asked Gil one time, we said like, we said, you don't talk about desire that much anymore. You know, you never talk about sex or desire. And he's like, he's like, I'm over 60. You know, I, you know, it was a, I, it's not as big of an issue for me as it was 25 years ago. And, um, again, on retreat, the, you know, the mind is, the mind is free to just sort of, you know, these energies are, are powerful. They're strong. There's, there's thoughts, there's images, there's, there's fantasy, um, If you, if you get curious and if you look at it, one of the characteristics of sensual desire is that it is pleasant. It is, there's something pleasant. Um, there's also an unpleasantness in it, I think. But, but just, to, just to talk about the pleasantness of, say, um, you know, a, a kind of, a kind of sexual fantasy or, or it could, doesn't even have to be that. It could be thinking about it, the kind of meal you're going to have, you know, when you, when you leave here or, um, you know, uh, it, it could be anything, but it's, it's often what I noticed is that those fantasies come up often in response to something that's happening in the moment that's unpleasant. You know, and it's like, what better way to um, get rid of this X, whatever it is, feeling of boredom or frustration or physical discomfort, knee pain, 
then replace it in, in the mind, in the consciousness with some enjoyable, juicy fantasy, you know, and, and just noticing, just noticing. Um, one of the interesting things about desire is that, um, and the ways of working with desire is to notice it's, it's to notice its pleasantness, but also to notice what may be unpleasant about desire. Um, there's actually something in that sort of always leaning forward, leaning into something or wanting more. Um, I sometimes notice when I'm eating, it's like no sooner has this, the fork full of food gone into my mouth than I'm, <laughs> you know, shuffling another or queued up and ready to I haven't tasted it at all, but it's like, you know, it's ready as soon as there's space. Um I notice with my my kids and it could you know it could be anything. It's like we'll put we'll put strawberries on the table and they'll just be grabbing them and like stuffing them in their mouth. And as much as, they, and then they'll like put them on there. My younger daughter who loves to eat and is, you know, she has such a great appetite. She'll like put them in her pocket. And so, you know, she's like, she's like, Momo, no strawberries in your pocket. And do what you have. And then you take it, you know, but this is, you know, we just want more. And we just, um, it's, you know, it's so human. It's so, it, and it's, it's so early, apparently, it starts. But um, the other thing in, in my younger daughter's nursery school, the drop-off is in this garden. It's a beautiful walled garden um, at a church in, in the city in San Francisco. And what the teachers sometimes do is they put these little treasures in the grass, these, you know, marbles or little um, special acorns. I mean, the garden already has treasures and, and they love those, but they also like finding these little stones or these little jewels. And, and then the other day I was, you know, my daughter Momo was, was home and I feel like what's in her pocket? And they're like full, you know, that's what those belong to the school. You're not supposed to take them. So, so like the next morning I sheepishly go in and say like, here are the, sorry, we, <laughs> we borrowed those. And, but you know, we want, we, you know, we want the treasure. We want it. We want to just keep it. And, um, so just noticing, just, you know, just noticing this, you know, this movement of the heart of, of, um, an aversion, ill will is, it's sort of the opposite of desire, but it's sort of, it's, it's the other side of the coin. You know, and it's like they're both, um, you know, they both involve some kind of dissatisfaction with this. You know, and it's either like I want some, I want more of something, or I want to get away from it. I want it to stop happening. Um, sometimes it's said that a person has a has a, a tendency. You know, you're a greed type, or you an aversion type, or you a, a delusion type, or um, so. Just, you know, so just getting interested. Um, 
one of the ways of working with ill will and aversion is um, there's, there's a number of ways, but one is dropping in an antidote, dropping in something. So for aversion, that might be metta, loving kindness. You know, there have been people who I've have brought out in me, you know, quite a lot of um, aversion or. I think hate is hate is the word that is really trying, but it sounds a little too too strong. Um, but um, doing metta for that person and really taking that on as a practice um, can can be profound, and it can really open the heart. And um, at least until the next conversation with them, <laughs> more metta, more metta. So. Um, so, so desire and aversion, uh, restlessness is again very common in the first day and very common in the city meditation because we're we're still um, anxiety. Often there is, um, I mean, what I recommend is sensing into the energetic experience of restlessness and um, sometimes doing more walking, you know, um, you you wanting to somehow bring in calming practices um, classically, mindfulness of breathing is one of the calming, um, calming techniques. So giving a little more attention to the rhythm of the breath and sort of to, to, to some sense of, of healing and ease that can come with the breath. Um, restlessness and anxiety is often connected to thinking and to certain kinds of thoughts. So, then, then it becomes, you know, how can I um, not try to block out these thoughts because that's aversion, but somehow allow them to be there, but not give them more power than um, than they than they deserve. Um, um, so, you know, maybe giving more 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 preference to uh, the body versus versus the mind, the thinking. We talked a little bit about sleepiness. Um, bringing more energy into the system, opening the eyes while you sit. Some people like to stand up. Um, it's a little bit more difficult to fall asleep when you're standing. It's. I've seen people do it, so I know it's possible, but you know, um, doing some faster walking. Um, one of the classical remedies for sleepiness and sloth and torpor is reconnecting to one's intention. You know, why am I doing this practice? Why am I here? What's important to me? It could be, um, it's said that one of the, um, 
helpful remedies for this kind of dullness or laziness or sleepiness is reflecting on death, reflecting on the shortness of life, the preciousness of life. Um, It can somehow arouse um, a quality that is called spiritual urgency. The Pali word is samvega. And this is this sort of... um, This feel, you know, I think everyone has aroused that quality in order to be here. You know, it takes a certain kind of um, going against the, the the stream of our our life, our conditioning, to step out and come to a place like this. And so, yeah, what what is it for you that arouses spiritual urgency? You know, that arouses this sense of now. Now is the time to do this. You know, it's not, it's, it, it's not, um, I don't want to wait. I don't, I, you know, I want to, I want to, um, you know, whatever it is for you, I want, I want to be fully alive. I want to find out who I am. I want to, um, be more open and compassionate and available for the people I love, the people in my life. And, you know, so whatever it is that you connect to, that's your intention, that can somehow sometimes pull us out of this dullness. And then doubt is the fifth one. And doubt is, um, in a way, the most pernicious of the hindrances because doubt is is so hard to see, you know. It's so hard to see doubt as doubt, and often we're inside of it, and it, it so it can be doubt about um, the practice itself, and you know why, you know what's the point of this, or what is what's good is this, or it could be doubt about the teachers, you know. Yeah, the practice is pretty good, but these teachers, you know, they just don't get it, or they, you know, or they're boring or, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. Issues. Or it could be doubts about myself. You know, it's like the practice is, yeah, I get it. I get meditation, but I can't do it. Um, um, it's said that doubt is the most dangerous of the hindrances because doubt is the one that can actually get us to stop practicing, you know, and that's a sad, that's a sad thing. Um, so um, I remember one time I was on a, on a uh, long meditation retreat and was going through some difficult, some kind of difficult states of consciousness that were a little bit scary for me and working on some practices that I hadn't done before. And I went into the interview with the teacher and I said, I just had all these reasons that I should stop doing this this particular practice I was doing, you know, this is happening. And I, I just, I just don't think this is the right practice for me at this time. And I and she just had this big smile on her face. And I said, oh, you know, but, you know, so I kind of did my thing. I said, okay, what? And she just said, doubt. <laughs> she just pointed and she said, doubt. And I said, oh, oh, that's how you do it. It's like, it was just like noticing this is doubt. 
She just named it. And, she, and as soon as she did that, it was like, of course, you just doubt. You know, and it completely changed my relationship to it. So it's be on the lookout for doubt. You know, it's, it's everywhere. It's lurking. Um, and the antidote to doubt is arousing confidence, arousing faith. Um, and, um, you know, so, so what is it that for you, gives you confidence in yourself, what gives you confidence in your capacity to do this practice, your capacity to learn ways of relating to my experience, to your experience, that free, that free us, that unhook us. this sort of gets into a little bit of the question of refuge. Um, you know, last night we chanted the refuges and I asked this question of what do I take refuge in? What do I depend on? What do I trust? What do I have confidence in? Um, I think if, if we just look without any judgment, without any, you know, just looking off it for, 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 for many of us, for most of us, I, I dare say, we um, look to the things of the world for refuge. You know, it may be money, it may be financial security, it may be career, sort of like, you know, just, just finding the right, the perfect job, the right career, the... It's, it's fulfilling, that uses my skills. You know, these beautiful things, great things. You know, it uses my skills. So maybe career or, or work. It may be um, other people, relationships. We're looking for uh, the, we're looking for the one or, you know, the next one. <laughs> As it may be. <laughs> um who will really get me, who will really, you know, um, you know, so, so looking for refuge in, in another person or, um, and when we take refuge in, as we did last night, refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha. What that really means is taking refuge in our practice. So what does it mean to take refuge in our practice, to reorient the heart away from the things of the world, the conditions of the world, and trying to line up all the conditions to be right? You know, I think it was probably Gil who is well, one teacher I know who, who talked about this, this project is sort of like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, have you heard that? It's <laughs> a little bit of, a little bit of a dark image, but it's, it, which is not to say that there isn't wisdom in having a fulfilling career and having financial security and having healthy relationships and 
it's not at all denying the importance of that and the richness of that, but it's, is that a refuge? Can that be a refuge? And, and, the, and the challenging teaching, the challenging uh, proposition of the Buddha is that um, um, what is impermanent, what is, uh, what is impermanent and uncertain and unreliable cannot be a lasting refuge. So, so maybe to what is this shift away from all the various particulars and the contents of our experience and the contents of our life to away from the contents and toward how we relate to them. And we can relate to all of these particulars in a way that brings suffering for ourselves and for the people around us, or we can relate to them in a way that unbinds, that unhooks, that frees. Um, there's a one of my favorite, I think, Holly chants, which is uh, I'm told, which is which is done at funerals in in Thailand in Southeast Asia, is the um, Anicca chant, and you know Anicca is the Pali word for impermanence, and the uh, the English translation is something like all all conditioned things, all sankara, all conditioned things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth is the greatest happiness. To to bring this truth to peace is the highest happiness, is the greatest happiness. And so there's this movement of harmonizing with life, of, of bringing this relationship, which is often so contentious and so, you know, um, um, we resist, we desire, we cling, we, we um, avoid, we deny, we, you know, to bring this relationship to peace is maybe, maybe the, the, um, the way to find refuge, and there's the um, and, and it's clo- it's so much closer than we might think. I mean, there can be a wonderful moment in practice. I distinctly remember remember this when having this feeling that oh wow it's possible to be mindful of anything. Whatever human experience happens, it's possible to meet it with my, I may not always do it, but it's possible. It's possible to be, 
to be aware, to be awake, to be mindful. And that in itself, just understanding that is so freeing. We don't have to be afraid of anything. You know, of course fear will come up. Of course all these things will come up. But we have the capacity to um, meet whatever happens with a heart that is open. And if mindfulness is there, um, implicit, implied in that is a degree of letting go, a degree of independence already. If I'm mindful of my desire in that moment, I am not the desire. You know, I'm independent of it. I see it. Maybe in the next moment, I'm back in the desire. And then maybe in the next moment, oh, I'm seeing it again. And so we pop in and out. Um, But... um, to know we have this capacity is is can be very freeing. Um, and then, so what characterizes this relationship? Maybe a degree of openness, a degree of care. What is it like to care for each breath? What is it like to? Um, I sort of, the word that's coming up is forgiveness. It's sort of like, what is it like to um, to truly forgive, to truly accept? Um, you know, this, this is what the very simple, the very ordinary practice of mindfulness can lead to. You know, we start to... Um, disentangle from the hindrances, which is one way of relating to our experience, and uh, more and more there's what's the word that's coming up is the equanimity, you know, this balance of ease with, with conditions as they are. Um, so I sort of, I don't know if I covered all of these, but I'll give you my, my condensation of the path in three memorable (laughs) nuggets. Waking up, giving up, and growing up. You know, and not necessarily not order, but that's the order that, that I'm proposing right now. And waking up is what we're doing, is being more awake to who we are, to all the different elements of our experience, especially the unwanted, unloved, disowned. You know, we're letting all the letting all of our birds out, letting all of the whatever metaphor we use, and just waking up to more of our life, to be more moments of mindfulness strung together. 
is, 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 is sort of what it's about. You know, usually we're here and we check out and we're here and we check out. Often we're checked out for long stretches of time, right? Then we come back. And so we're more, we're waking up you know, and coming back and more and more moments of presence. So that's waking up. Giving up is giving up our resistance to how things are is giving up our, our need to control what's actually not controllable. You know, to, um, one of my teachers talks about impermanence and he says, there are three things. Like, um, everything changes. Anything can happen. And you are not exempt. <laughs> you know, and this, and what does this bring up? And, you know, it, um, of course, without impermanence, there would be no growth. There would be no, uh, there would be no life without impermanence. But it's also, there's this deep, deep human conditioning to want safety, to want security, to want stability. And so when we start to open the door to, perceiving impermanence, that can be scary. And so, so, so waking up is, is being here and giving up is giving up our, our agendas, our, our projects to control life and, you know, make it fit into how we want it to be. And then, and then the third I have is growing up, which is, you know, I'll let you know when I get there, <laughs> which is this, you know, I, the way I'm, I'm envisioning it, this is this, is this mature, um, this mature meeting of life as it is. And this, 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 this coming to peace with how things are. And then, and then sharing that being able to live more fully, to love more fully, um, uh, to take responsibility in a way that maybe we weren't before. That, you know, when you realize how precious life is, how meaningful life is, and, um, and that, it, that it is our responsibility. Um, uh, that, you know, that's, that's maybe approaching this, you know, this growing up. So waking up, giving up, and growing up. Um, and, and doing all of this with a lot of patience, a lot of compassion for ourselves, for our difficulties, for our suffering. Um, one person, one um, friend of mine once defined meditation as pouring the water of compassion over one's own head. You know, and it, it just always comes back to that, doesn't it? It's like, you know, the, the natural response of a heart that's open in response to suffering is compassion. And, you know, this is a gift that we give to ourselves Sometimes it's hardest to give it to ourselves, you know, it's, um, so just noticing, 
is it is it where 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 is where is compassion difficult to access but um and and then just this this maybe finally just to say well um um my favorite dharma talk ever which is also the shortest dharma talk i've ever heard was a talk that um we're told that Suzuki Roshi, who was the the founder and the teacher at the San Francisco Zen Center, gave in the middle of an intensive seven-day meditation retreat, Sashin, you know, everybody's sitting and aching and tormented by our minds and tormented by our bodies. And, and he you know, kind of got up to the, to the, um, to the, Abbot seed and and you know everyone's kind of listening you know expectantly and he said please don't be bothered by your mind thank you (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's you know and that's this independence that you know can we let all of the demons out can we let all of the you know the animals to run wild and total freedom total permission and really be okay and really keep our balance and really know this is not me this is not only me um and and find our freedom within it. Um, so, I didn't intend to give such a long talk, and I thank you for your for your attention. And thank you. <laughs>